from the rugged desert outside Yuma, Arizona. This is Outpost Outspoken. Outpost Outspoken is the official podcast of U.S. Army Yuma Proving Ground, which conducts natural environment testing of military equipment in Arizona, Alaska, and the tropics. Hello, I'm Mark Schauer. San Diego native Brad Cox served an enlistment in the Marine Corps and in 2001 started working at Yuma Proving Ground as a test vehicle operator. Today, he leads the post's metrology and simulation division. When you were stationed here in the Marine Corps, were you familiar at all with Yuma Proving Ground? I would go to the river as a kid, and we would always pass uh, the Martinez Lake, uh, the turn right there. And all I knew of Yuma Proving Ground was a couple buildings in the distance. So I always felt that it was, you know, some really small army station uh, that uh, supported the army and somehow maybe in the past, but never fathomed that it was so big and uh, important to the army. How did you start out here 23 years ago? So trying to move away from San Diego, uh, affordable living, uh, picked up a CDL license and uh, became a test vehicle operator. So uh, just driving vehicles for the Army uh, that were in the beginning stages of test and evaluation. And you wanted to go further than just that, it sounds like. Yes. At some point in time, I I felt that uh, driving wasn't quite enough. I I saw the experiences test officers had and the responsibility that they had over the years and felt that uh, that was probably an avenue I wanted to pursue. So quit as a driver and became a full-time student uh, a year and a half at Arizona Western College and and two years at San Diego State College for my mechanical engineering degree. And when you started out here as a test officer in combat and automotive, it was hot and heavy testing in those years. Oh, for sure. We were really busy uh, with all the MRAP testing, JLTV. There's a lot of big, heavy-hitting programs. it seemed like I was part of those in, in uh, certain spectrums, but I was also a part of a lot of um, programs that were kind of outside the box as far as really small vehicles, vehicles that we had not tested before, uh, that were new and needed new uh, procedures developed. Uh, I was usually tossed on those types of programs uh, because of my background in off-roading, uh, and general experience with military vehicles in the, in the uh, Marine Corps, it seems like I was more adaptable to figuring out how to test these vehicles according to the procedures, um, but molding the test procedures to that type of uh, vehicle, supporting it out here at YPG. When you were a test officer and a team lead in the ground combat side, did you involve yourself with the metrology and simulation folks very much? I knew David Lee, um, was, <laughs> which is part of the metrology branch. Um, he was able to verify if we suspected there was a crack in a frame uh, of a vehicle or a lift, lift point, tie-down point. Wherever we thought there might be a crack, we couldn't call it a crack until David Lee said it was a crack with all his non-destructive testing experience. Then you became a branch chief for metrology branch. Yes. Uh, So after 
years of being a test officer, uh, years of being a team leader over at Combat and Automotive Systems, uh, picked up a supervisor position as a metrology branch chief, and uh, used a lot of my knowledge of uh, what they do over there with weapon systems inspections and measurements and uh, working with David Lee and all the people over there taking the, the really important measurements. It definitely uh, expanded my knowledge of what they do over there at Metrology. And not long after that, you became the division chief for Metrology and Simulation. Right. I uh, had a supervisor that uh, retired, and uh, the position opened up. So applied to the position, and uh, I was selected. What's, in general, what does metrology and simulation do for the test mission at Yuma Proving Ground? So metrology and simulation uh, is really important to the weapon systems as far as being able to inspect them before they get here or when they get here and uh, throughout their testing life uh, to make sure that if there's anything of concern or wear and tear on the weapon system, we'll know about it well in advance before wasting a lot of man hours of testing and uh, equipment, projectiles. Um, we're able to kind of see when things are starting to change on the weapon system, but ensure that it's always safe to use before it's used by personnel here at YPG but also taking critical measurements with ballistic pressures, uh, chamber measurements to make sure that everything's still in check. And some of the equipment you can bring to bear on it, on non-destructive testing, doesn't exist anywhere else within the Army. Uh, it, it does, um, but we've definitely fine-tuned our capabilities to the weapon systems that are being tested. So if we know something's coming down the pike, we're able to adjust and use the technology that's new and have the manufacturers build the equipment that we need to inspect the weapon systems coming. Do you think your division's well positioned for the future? Yes, for sure. Uh, we're definitely always keeping a pulse on technology, going to different uh, conferences and symposiums, working with industry, and really gleaning on the, the next wave of digital equipment and, and laser systems, measuring systems, and uh, incorporating that type of technology into our inspections. But also, we have a lot of different environmental chambers that are being improved uh, to be able to simulate the mother nature environments and mill standards that equipment has to go through while it's uh, being transported to the field and, and in the field during operation. Being a veteran yourself, do you get a certain satisfaction that you're doing these things for the warfighters even today? For sure. There's definitely a good sense of satisfaction. Uh, even though I'm not in the military anymore in the Marine Corps, I still feel an appreciation and sense of uh, duty to continue to support the military. And working out at YPG, I, I get that satisfaction for sure. And if my kids were to ever join the military, uh, I, I definitely have had a piece in their safety uh, because of the equipment that has gone through YPG and ensuring that it's usable, effective, and, and, and safe to use. Fred Cox, it's really good talking to you today. Yeah, I appreciate it.
from providing weather data at the Colorado River Crossing Balloon Festival to teaching robotics to middle schoolers as part of the gains in the education of math and science summer camps. Test Support Branch Chief Nicholas McCall has contributed to YPG's climate well beyond thousands of specialized weather forecasts. Did you ever think you'd wind up as a meteorologist for an Army post in Arizona? No, I have to say, uh, no, I don't think that was quite quite what I was shooting for here when I when I went to college up in up in Vermont and whatnot, and I got got my degree and working my normal job at Bob Evans and whatnot. I'm thinking I really like getting National Weather Service. That was kind of my my vector there, but uh, but apparently uh, fate had a different story in mind for me here. So uh, a long time ago, my actually. Gabe Langbauer, one of my college roommates from from Linden State College, actually said, "Hey, did you hear about that job that the the Army posted?" I'm like, "I don't, don't really want to enlist in the Army." He's like, "Oh no, it's a civilian job." I'm like, "Oh," and he's like, "One of our buddies from college is actually at uh, at uh, Dugway." I'm like, "Okay, well, all right, I'll look into it." And looked into it and submitted my resume and like the six million resumes I already submitted at the time, National Weather Service. And like literally the next day, I get a call from from Dean Weingarten from from YPG saying, hey, you got a few minutes to talk? I'm like, sure. And so, yeah, I went through and talked, and I don't remember much of the conversation outside of the, the one question that was asked, are you comfortable climbing 300-foot towers? And, you know, I was young, and I'm like, well, whatever gets me the job, I'm comfortable with doing. Um, <laughs> I didn't realize he was quite that serious, but uh, <laughs> a couple of years later, I was climbing 300-foot towers. Now, sometime over the next 20 years, you got involved with the gains in the education of math and science program here. Yeah, I did indeed, yes. Yeah. So that was, that was a fun little fun little story there, right, where I, I got uh, inadvertently uh, got uh, roped into that by uh, asking the question uh, for if my son got enrolled in the program or whatnot because my son was old enough. And, uh, and so I was talking to Paula there, and she's uh, like, yeah, we, we need a, we're looking for someone to, uh, to teach the robotics. And I, I heard you, you got some robotics experience. I'm like, yeah, I, got, I got a little bit here and there. And uh, she's like, well, you got to, like to teach the help us teach class. I'm like, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm help, I'll help anybody, right? And if you need help, I'll, I'll help you out. And so, yeah, she brought me on board there. And three years later, still, still doing gems. Like I said, did, did gems up in, uh, up in Alaska there, and that was, that was an experience there. That was a pretty fun summer there. Um, actually, my son was able to join, join me and my dad. Actually, we went up to, to Alaska there and supported the, the gems up there. So, it was a, it was a pretty good summer. Another little bit of community support that you've been doing for the entirety of your tenure here is the Colorado River Balloon Festival. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, almost 20 years of supporting that event. Uh, a long, long time ago when I first got here, it was one of the community events that the meteorology team um, did for the city of Yuma there. And, uh, you know, one of the guys there said, hey, yeah, come on board and help me. I'm like, I'm sure, I'll help. And, uh, and yeah, from there, just kept on going and Every year I kept on doing it, and now it's almost become like a tradition now, uh, even though I've, I've moved up in the, in the ranks here and uh, not in, as involved in meteorology outside of just being their boss, so to speak. Um, I'm still tagged with, uh, with going out there. So, you know, myself and, and the family, we make a whole family event, uh, head out there for the Saturday and Sunday morning flights and sit there and launch the weather balloons, make sure all the balloonists there have the data they need to, not do anything crazy and damage the balloons or the people inside of it. 
Now, the weather balloons you launch at the Balloon Festival, we're talking one a day, right? So for the event, we launch two per day, right? So we'll, we'll get there at like 5 a.m. in the morning, and we'll throw a balloon up straight out of the gate. And then, because um, no one's there, no one's there that early. Uh, so we get that first balloon up. Um, and then about an hour later, um, we'll fire one more off. And then we do that to kind of get a trending, right? Kind of, A, make sure the equipment's all working, and B, just, just some trending to see uh, see how usually there's a, an inversion that sets up. Um, so we get some wind flow pattern inside the inversion that we want to kind of get some more data on. That really impacts the balloons, right? At the end of the day, they're not going very high. So they only care about the surface and maybe a couple thousand feet above the surface. Um, so that's really what we're collecting there to kind of make sure that they have a go, no-go um, decision. From what I understand, Human Proving Ground launches more weather balloons per year than maybe any other entity in this country. Uh, you know, back in the day, I don't have the current stats, but man, in, in the heyday, we were launching 4,800 weather balloons per year. Um, at the end of the day, yeah, we, we were launching more than any other organization. Um, for the Army, we dwarfed them by at least twice. I think White Sands was only, only the other range that was close enough to come beat us, but even they, they weren't there. National Weather Service, they only launch two per day per site, and there's only you know, 100 sites in the United States. So even they, it, it gets harder for them to even try to beat us. But uh, for the state of Arizona, if there's a weather balloon and you're tracking it, which there are, or there are communities out there that can actually track weather balloons, um, you'll see that most of them are ours. But the data that you generate from all these launches ends up in the National Weather Service's weather models. Indeed, indeed. So all the data we collect here, and it wasn't always the case, but when I first got here, one of my objectives was to actually get all the data we collect because, again, we're launching 4,800 balloons every year, and we have a massive what we call mesonet um, of weather stations across YPG, about 40 weather stations um, across YPG. Back in the day, that, that data was all closed, right? It was all just for YPG's purposes, et cetera, et cetera. But the data's not classified. There's no real reason for us to, you know, to, to hold it. So we worked with the National Weather Service and, cre- and created pathways to transmit our data to the National Weather Service. So the balloon data, for example, as soon as we launch it and we take care of the customer, the data gets pushed onto the National Weather Service, and then they have that data to use for their local forecast. And then, of course, they take that data and then they send it up and at the end of the day, it gets ingested into the global models. And the same thing for our surface data as well. We just recently, last like five, eight years, um, actually got our surface data in real time to actually get posted um, to the national database. And, of course, that data also gets sucked up into the, the models as well. Given the amount of forecasting we do here, would it be fair to say that Yuma, the Yuma region has more data to make accurate forecasts with? And oh, I, I, would, I would argue that we, compared to most places in the United States, we have the most data. Now, again, there's some research facilities that are going to, you know, beat you there, but they're a research facility. Like Oklahoma, for example, has got a pretty extensive uh, mesonet um, that would dwarf ours. But at the end of the day, no, no, no one else has, has come close to the amount of data. Um, and like I said, Phoenix enjoys it because, again, they're upstream. In meteorology, we always like, we always like data upstream. Winds, of course, are from the west to the east, so any data that we have upstream or to the west is great. Um, the west coast, of course, suffers a problem, the fact that there's the ocean out there, so we don't really have a whole lot of data over there. So National Weather Service likes the fact that we at least get some data eh, a couple hundred miles to the west, but uh, they, they never turn it down. At the end of the day, if, if there's a problem with the connection link, we get a call from National Weather Service like, hey, uh, 
We don't even know where that data is. It's like, uh, yeah, we, we, we got it. We just have some technical difficulties. We'll, we'll get to you. So they, they use it. And if you read the National Weather Service forecast discussions, um, you'll see uh, Yuma Proving Grounds usually called out once in a while. They'll be like, thanks to the Yuma sounding or YPG sounding, um, you know, we, we have a better idea of severe, severe weather outbreak for today or something like that. So, so it's a pretty, pretty cool relationship we have there. Nick McCall, it's really good talking to you today. No, thanks for having me. This has been Outpost Outspoken. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you next time from the forefront of Army transformation.